Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, and today we're talking with our guests about the new UN Climate Report. We have three guests with us today. Two are in the studio, and one is joining us by Zoom. We have Jessica O'Reilly, a Hamilton Luger School of Global and International Studies Associate Professor. Ben Inskeep is joining us by Zoom. He is with the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. He is an adjunct instructor there, and he's also program director of the Citizens Action Coalition. And Michaela Bonney is the director of Sustain IU. If you want to join us on the program, there are multiple ways since we're back in the studio. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Send us questions there. You can send us questions to uh, our email account, news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also join us on the air by calling in 812-855-0811 in Bloomington. So if uh, we could start with with Jessica, Jesse O'Reilly, if you can talk to us a little bit about what's different. We've been talking about these issues for many years, as you know. We've made maybe a little bit of progress. Now there's this report out. It seems like a very sobering report. What's new in the report? Um, Great. Thank you, Bob, for this question. Thank you for having me. I'm really uh, happy to be here talking about this, even though it is a a grave uh, issue. So the report that we're talking about is the sixth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They are the working group, um, is the third working group, and they're the group that focus on mitigation or solutions. We've gotten a couple other IPCC reports since last summer that have been explaining the physical science to us that climate change is real. Um, It's happening now. It's caused by people. It's going to get worse. Working group two looks at the impacts um, and what we need to do to adapt and what this means for uh, people and ecosystems in terms of risk and vulnerability. And then finally, this report that was released on Monday is how do we solve these problems that we've gotten ourselves into. Um, A lot of this material we've heard before. It's about energy policy. It's about uh, financial policy. Um, To get that right on the international level um, is a key component, but not the only one, to solving climate change. Um, What's new in the report is uh, there is some good news, um, even though the report overall is not great news. Um, One is that we finally, we all know about curves now after being in a pandemic for a couple of years. Um, We actually are slowing the rate of emissions globally, and this is the first time we've seen this in an IPCC report. We are bending the curve, and that's due to some policies that have been in place approximately since the Paris Agreement globally, 2015. Also, uh, there's been a hundredfold increase in electric vehicle adoption. Um, There's been uh, incredible reductions in price in uh, batteries and in solar and adoption of that. So that's the good news. However, uh, it looks like we have less time and less sort of uh, room in the carbon budget than we previously thought, and that is... uh, uh, just another call to action in a, in a line of uh, in a line of calls of action. Um, this report says if we want to stay at or below 1.5 degrees Celsius, we need to peak carbon emissions in 2025. Um, and so the uh, the decline that we need and the pace that we need to work at in terms of carbon emissions. Um, 
is um, is almost going to take like a miraculous feat to get. So that's very concerning when we also look at the ambition. Um, another piece of this is that we can't stay below 1.5 or 2 without um, something called carbon dioxide removals. So these are technological approaches that exist, um, but they don't exist at sort of the industrial level scale that we need to reflect the temperature reductions in the models. So it, it, there is a lot of serious work ahead of us um, uh, in terms of uh, energy policy, in terms of financing this. Um, and another interesting piece in the report, before I turn it back to you, Bob, mm-hmm. is that for the first time, this report um, doesn't just look at supply side um, policy, but includes demand and things like culture change and behavior change. And so we see a lot more options for solutions in this report than we saw in a, in their iteration in, um, five or six years ago. And so this is things like thinking about diet, um, uh, thinking about uh, cultural shifts, um, uh, how to consume less and how consumers can participate in solutions. A lot of times this problem is so big and it requires this top-level approach that consumers, or even if we don't want to call ourselves consumers, but private citizens um, may feel at loss uh, about what to do. This report um, gives some ideas and insights on how to do that. Thank you. There's a lot to dive into there. I, I want to uh, bring Ben Inskeep into the conversation. Ben is program director from the Citizen Action Citizens Action Coalition here in Indiana. So what um, what do you draw from this report and the things that Jessica said about about the report? What are the key things that the, the Citizens Action Coalition wants to work on? Well, thank you so much, Bob, and what a great introduction we've had into that report. Um, so, yeah, the Citizens Action Coalition is Indiana's oldest and largest consumer and environmental advocacy organization. So climate change is something we are, you know, acutely aware of and focused on addressing here in Indiana and doing it in a way that's going to protect Hoosier consumers and make sure that uh, folks will still have access to affordable energy and ener- affordable energy bills as we make this transition here in our state. So some of my big takeaways from the report, you know, definitely it kind of uh, highlights the critical nature of the climate crisis, that it's going on today, but that we're not acting like it. We're not meeting uh, those needs to reduce our emissions uh, at the pace that's necessary to really stave off the worst impacts from it. So uh, the good news, though, is that this report does highlight that there are many, many affordable and uh, even, in fact, solutions today that would save consumers money by switching to now. And so we can take action today um, in order to address climate change and that many of these solutions are available to us as Hoosiers here in Indiana. So things like solar and wind energy um, have reduced in cost uh, tremendously this past decade. They're now the most affordable energy technologies we have. So, um, you know, I, I think that's something that a lot of Hoosiers don't realize is that the cost of these clean solutions has gone down so rapidly. It's now more affordable than your traditional fossil fuel um, energy resources like coal and natural gas. So there's a tremendous opportunity to switch to clean energy. And there's also a big opportunity for consumers to save money in this process by adopting energy efficiency solutions. And that's something that we at the Citizens Action Coalition, those, those types of solutions are exactly what we're advocating for when we're talking with lawmakers, when we're going before our uh, utility commission to advocate on behalf of Hoosiers. Uh, we're looking for those opportunities that are going to address the climate crisis while saving customers money. All right. And Michaela Bonney, from a standpoint of, of, you know, what individuals can do and what Hoosiers can do, because this is uh, this, as, as our speakers have said already, I mean, this seems like such a big issue. It's about the it's about our earth. It's about everything. How can we bring it back so that individuals can make decisions? Mm-hmm. It is a big issue. Um, and I think what is highlighted from the recent IPCC report is that because it's so Big. We, although individual actions are important, we really need to move beyond that at this point in order to get warming um, to be within a, a livable um, parameters for us. So at this point, we're really needing uh, commercial entities, municipalities, governments. We really need policy 
And the way that we go about that, Bob, um, here at IU in sustainability, we follow what's called the the carbon reduction hierarchy. So um, step one is just avoiding emissions. Um, So preventing some type of action from taking place. So if we think of um, each of us driving in our cars, this is something that we can do, um, but it, it needs to take place at a, a little larger level. So step one is avoiding, so that would be uh, walking or biking instead. Step two would be reducing emissions, so having a more efficient vehicle. Step three would be substituting, so that's transitioning from a fossil fuel to a renewable f- fuel. And then uh, that final step, as Jesse referenced earlier, is CO2 removal. So sequestering or drawing down the carbon that would be associated with perhaps an electric car that runs on renewable energy. So following that reduction hierarchy is something that each of us can do, but we're now looking towards commercial entities and policy to also follow those steps. Okay, so give me sort of a, um, an example on the ground. So I'm an individual. You, you talked about things I can do. So how does that look for me or how does it look for you? Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, One of the biggest things that we can do right now is small tweaks to our diet. I think when we think about um, solving the carbon crisis, we have this image in our head of a vegan that's biking to work every day. And uh, what the science tells us is that even small tweaks to our eating habits, eating a little bit less meat, um, and when you do eat meat, transitioning to something smaller. So a chicken um, creates calories for us more efficiently than cows do. Um, so really thinking about perhaps red meat as a special occasion. This is a cheeseburger that you have on the 4th of July. I love cheeseburgers. This is a, a hot dog that you have at a ball game. It's a steak you have on Valentine's Day. But for the remainder of your year, uh, really modifying small actions like that uh, can, can make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have uh, our first caller. Let me give the numbers again and, and our content, contact information again. 812-855-0811 in Bloomington. If you're outside of Bloomington, 877-285-9348. You can also send us your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. And I believe this is Valerie on the phone, and she has a question for Ben. Yeah, um First of all, thank you for uh, being back in the studio where you can take phone calls because there is no Internet access where I live in Owen County. So this is the first time in uh, a while that I've been able to participate. Uh, My question is regarding, uh, you know, is there any hope of anybody ever trying to regulate the propane LP gas industry? It's my understanding that they are not regulated by anyone and all of the companies that i have dealt with in my 45 years of being out in the country um seem to have no concern at all for the planet in other words most of their policies are set up to favor people who use more gas in other words if you use above a certain amount of gas per year you don't have to pay what is sometimes a very exorbitant tank rental um, the company I have now uh, has a reasonable tank rental for everybody, but I've come to find out that their pricing is based on how much gas you use. In other words, the more gas you use, the cheaper per gallon you pay. And, you know, this just outrages me. And their only concern seems to be maximum profit, and I believe they are unregulated. And um, is there any hope of somehow getting them on the program to trying to uh, make their profits somehow um, a little bit geared toward trying to save the planet. Let's go to Ben first. Ben? Well, thank you so much for your question. That, you know, really highlights, I think, another way citizens can get involved and take action. And we invite everybody, all Hoosiers, to get involved in this issue because it does affect you. Um, through exactly this type of way, through your access to energy and the affordability of it and the sometimes backwards policies that are in place that do things like encourage more use as opposed to encouraging wise conservation. Um, So, yes, we are actively engaged before our regulators and before our lawmakers to to lobby and to advocate for wise policies, uh, such as uh, the type of policies you're describing, where we're 
you know, for example, when it comes to how rates are set, making sure that those rates are set in a way that's going to encourage things like energy efficiency and wise use, uh, that, is, that are and ensure that customers have access to energy and affordable bills, um, and that are going to, uh, you know, hold uh, the special interests, their feet to the fire. The, the fossil fuel companies and the utilities in our state um, are actually some of the, the folks that are blocking progress and that are blocking the policies we need to, to take action. And so the Citizens Action Coalition has been fighting against these interests for many decades, and it's definitely an uphill battle, but we really appreciate um, all the citizens that get involved and that care about these issues. And um, I think that's maybe another way that citizens can take action on climate. It doesn't have to just be your own personal carbon footprint. It can also be taking action on politics and holding your politicians accountable for how they vote, for the policies they're promoting, and what their priorities are. Ben, there, there been, there's been a lot of um, movement in the policies on rooftop solar, and I know the CAC was involved in that. Where do we stand now? I'm so glad you asked that question. I was uh, involved in, in four out of five of those cases before the um, our Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission. Um, so where we currently stand on rooftop solar is that uh, come July 1st uh, of this year, there's going to be a major change and how folks get credited for any extra solar energy from the rooftop that they send back to the grid. And unfortunately, uh, there's not a lot of clarity at this moment in time because of the way that that, the law that had um, implemented this uh, was implemented by our utility commission and a subsequent court case uh, kind of threw out the way that that, uh, our utility commission had interpreted that law. And so right now, the case is pending. Uh, they've asked the Supreme Court of the state to hear that case. And uh, so we're kind of in a wait and see pattern right now to see what the resolution is and how customers are going to be compensated come July 1st. So so first of all, I would encourage folks, if they are interested in rooftop solar, if they can go solar before July 1st, uh, now is the time to do it. I, I'm my fa- um, I myself, in fact, am a, uh, a new rooftop solar customer. So I just had my system installed a few weeks ago. Um, and then, uh, you know, we're definitely uh, paying attention and closely involved in these cases to advocate um, for smart rooftop solar policy so that we can continue to have Hoosiers going solar. Um, because if uh, the law is implemented in a way that um, is unfavorable, it could really uh, crash that rooftop solar market and really prevent the solution from being implemented across the state, which would set us backwards on our climate effort. So just to simplify, the uh, changes would make uh, solar more profitable for companies and less profitable for the the uh, consumer that puts rooftop or puts rooftop solar on their homes, right? So yeah, the, the uh, electric utilities have been fighting us when it comes to rooftop solar policy because. They want to control all of the generating assets, all the power plants, and they don't want consumers to, to be able to, to generate their own power and not have to buy it from them as the monopolies. And so um, right now, under a policy called net metering, uh, when you send a kilowatt hour of electricity to the grid, uh, you can then take a kilowatt hour of electricity from the grid, for example, at nighttime when your system isn't generating power, and you get that kind of one-to-one trade-off. This nets out. And what the utilities have proposed to do and what's the the pending issue right now is they want to reduce that credit. Um, So, for example, if you are a Duke Energy customer paying roughly 14 cents a kilowatt hour for energy you buy from Duke, uh, Duke only wants to pay you about three cents a kilowatt hour for anything you send to the grid. So it's a really dramatic reduction in that credit rate you would get for extra energy you generate going from 14 cents down to roughly three cents. All right. I want to, you know, we're talking about policies now or in that sort of um, niche of the program. And Jessica, you mentioned policies have bent the curve. Some policies have bent the curve. Which ones have been the most successful? Um, that is a great question. Um, uh, what has had the most lasting um, impacts on reducing carbon emissions and encouraging, you know, not just individuals, individual homeowners, which has a lot of justice implications. You have to own a home and have the resources to uh, to install the solar panels. Um, 
uh, but a more sort of a collective or a societal policy where we would see Duke Energy generating electricity from solar and wind. Um, and so there can be federal policies uh, that can encourage that transformation um, as our, our coal-fired power plants are quite old. Um, a lot of them are being retired because it's not uh, it's just cheaper to, to run solar, uh, not solar. Well, it might be cheaper to run solar, but it's really, uh, uh, in the past 10 years or so, been less expensive to create a new um, natural gas uh, power plant. Um, so if there could be policies that incentivized uh, creating sort of municipal solar um, so or wind farms where... Um, it wasn't individual consumers shouldering the entire burden of, of getting these onto rooftops, but instead a more dispersed effort. And part of that is by putting a price, um, and this is through uh, a, a fee and dividend program or through a carbon uh, a tax, um, putting the price on the carbon pollution um, to account for the fact that uh, there are all of these long-lasting environmental health um, impacts uh, when we pollute with carbon dioxide. So the state of California has had a long-standing, very successful uh, cap-and-trade program, um, and they have reduced their carbon emissions to below 1990 levels. So they've met and exceeded um, the Kyoto Protocol targets that were negotiated in the 1990s. If we had all uh, followed those targets, um, solving this problem would be so much cheaper now and cause so much less suffering. So really it's about, um, it's about economic policy that encourages investment and not just individual investment, but um, national or, 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 or grid-scale investments in clean energy. Before the show's over, we have to talk about, you know, the political will and, and the politics of the situation. But we have another question that's come in from uh, our producers just forwarded this one to me that says, uh, the report said an increasing share of emissions can be attributed to towns and cities. What can local governments do? Michaela? Sure. Jessica? Michaela, sure. why don't you start on that? I can speak to that. Yeah. Um, so here in Bloomington, uh, I think that our municipality has done a good job at encouraging uh, rooftop solar, as we've already talked about, but perhaps more importantly, diversifying the folks who have access to that, making sure that people on fixed incomes, um, folks on lower incomes are able to um, take advantage of the eventual financial savings of solar. Um, so the city of Bloomington has a program um, for individuals and nonprofits to engage in efficiency audits of their homes and uh, nonprofits, and that is sponsored by the city of Bloomington. And then additionally, uh, there is a uh, stipend that's available for folks on fixed or lower incomes to offset some of the costs of solar, and that is in addition to the federal tax credit. And I think that making sure that these policies that we have are equitable and available to all, um, a rising tide raises all ships, and that's certainly true about drawing down carbon. It helps all of us. And presently and in the future, climate change is most affecting marginalized communities. It's most affecting communities of color, um, low-income folks, people who are affected by air pollution just here in Indiana. And so um, any program that can help a business, a nonprofit, or a home um, become more efficient and transition to electrification and renewables is a good one. Can you talk a little bit about transportation and, and transit issues, mass transit? I know, um, you know, Bloomington Transit has been here for a long time. They've gone. They've made lots of changes. I know the mayor is talking about uh, with his new tax proposal. Part of it is to really increase expenditure on on mass transit. What kind of difference does that make, and what should a city be looking to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are behind some of our peers uh, internationally with uh, public transportation infrastructure. So, giving an individual uh, an option to get to their workplace, get to their school, buy groceries, 
in a way that's not a single occupancy vehicle helps drive down carbon emissions, especially if we make sure that um, developments, that um, dense population, that fixed income homes are near those places of transit, that helps as well. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask Ben about that. I, I, I don't know how familiar you are with this issue, if you were involved with it at all, but I know the legislature had discussions about um, a transit line in, in Indianapolis, and there was some pushback to whether the city – and I know just enough to be dangerous about this – but mm-hmm. the, that the city was trying to increase its ability to have mass transit in the city to the suburbs. Um, can you Do you know much about that? You know, I don't have uh, particular insight um, into that necessarily, but, but, you know, I will say that our General Assembly has unfortunately not been uh, helpful when it comes to addressing the climate crisis recently. We've taken a number of steps backwards. So not only, you know, fighting things like transportation uh, options in Indianapolis, but things like uh, they passed a law um, a few years back that removed the requirement that our electric utilities offer energy efficiency programs to customers uh, you know, they passed this law in 2017 that's ending rooftop solar uh, net metering. Um, and then, you know, just kind of uh, we, a lack of overall leadership uh, from our government when it comes to setting a climate and an energy policy that could really help spell out, you know, how, how we're going to get where we need to get. Yeah, let's talk about this a little more. I, I said I wanted to get into the politi- politics of it. it. It seems like, you know, we've become more and more divided. In the last, I don't think of any any um surprised to any of us about that. We've become more and more divided, but it seems like uh, climate change issues, uh, once you understand that they're real, affect everybody the same, right? So why is it so difficult to get everybody on the same page or at least close to the same page when it comes to political discussions about something that is of such huge interest and such huge um, importance to all of us? Well, I'd love to chime in if I may. Uh, Yes, please. Uh, I would say that, you know, the big issue comes from the the special interests that are fighting the the climate policy and wise energy policy. That's really where the barrier is. And so, you know, to to put a finer point on it, it's, you know, the fossil fuel companies and and some of our uh, utilities in the state that wield a tremendous amount of power and influence over our policymakers. So when you look at the, the public polling in Indiana, you know, you see that actually Republicans, Democrats, independents, we all are in fairly, uh, you know, in pretty close agreement about the causes of climate change, being humans, and about the need to take action on climate change and on the desirability of many of the solutions, like uh, very strong favorability ratings among Democrats, Republicans, and independents when it comes to things like solar and wind and energy efficiency. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of Hoosiers, you know, recognize that a lot of these solutions are common sense and it's our policymakers who are not following through on what the on what Hoosiers want, uh, because they're captive to some of these special interests that wield a lot of power, and that have a tremendous amount of money and influence at our uh, general assembly and before our commissions. And if I could just add respectfully, um, I certainly understand the sentiment of the the statement, but I do not think that climate change is affecting everybody equally. And so, as been referenced, there are folks with a vested interest to continue to sell fossil fuels. And then there's people like me, uh, you know, middle income, middle of America. If it gets hotter, I'll just turn up my AC. You know, how how does it truly affect me? Uh, But that's really where we are seeing presently uh, that marginalized communities are being more affected now. And historically, those folks don't have a seat at decision-making. So I think that trying to amplify those voices and those stories and get at policy that makes it um, makes the fossil fuel industry perhaps less lucrative, that seeks to put a price tag on some of the externalities of climate change, so that's health, uh, that will help. Thank you so much for that answer. I appreciate it. 
Jessica, do you want to respond? Yes, um, I agree with uh, what my my colleagues have have said, um, and I would recommend a documentary called Merchants of Doubt to sort of understand misinformation around climate change and the historical precedents of that. Um, this issue can sometimes be turned into a culture's war issue, and that is, uh, you know, a well-funded effort to do that. And so, when uh, an, um, an issue gets heavily politically polarized, um, we should try to resist this. So there are solutions across the political spectrum to respond to this problem in front of us. There are conservative solutions. There are business-oriented you know, uh, solutions, um, uh, and then all the way up through uh, some uh, sort of... Um, uh, more more radical uh, solutions on the left. Um, and so it's an entire spectrum. And so to have a serious conversation about how to solve climate change um, means forming a, a coalition of people who have different political views and are ready to talk about um, solutions that work for the for the values of the community that they're in. Just as a follow-up, you mentioned business-oriented solutions. And I would... I would suggest just by listening to all of you that that technology is going to have a great deal to say about how we solve these problems, that there are going to be – there is uh, – if people want to make money, there's money to be made by creating um, environmentally friendly – friendlier uh, technologies and, and power, correct? Oh, exactly. And um, I've been attending the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change meetings, the COPS, um, and I bring IU's delegation of students, um, which is the most inspiring thing I do to take IU students to these international climate negotiations. Um, but when, uh, when they were negotiating the Paris Agreement, I was on a call with my students and President, then President Obama's office about what their goal was with the Paris Agreement. And the goal was, they said, to send a clear business signal about the direction of investment. So at, at that level, at the global level, it very much is a, still about keeping the global economy intact as we know it. And we can, you know, have arguments for and against that. Um, and drawing and decoupling the economy from the fossil fuel energy infrastructure that sort of built the economy up. And so this is already happening. People are making money. There's a bit of a frontier aspect with some things like CDR. There's a cult of personality around electric vehicles, you know. Um, it really is uh, for, for entrepreneurs, for tech people, um, there's there's a lot uh, a lot to gain, and and they know it. Walmart is heavily invested in their uh, climate um, emissions targets, as is Amazon. These are sort of mainstream, powerful uh, American companies that are that are on board with this. So I think they see the writing on the wall. All right, we have about twenty minutes to go in the program. So if you want to join us and talk with our panelists about the U.N. Climate Report and about all issues involved with climate change, please give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. Uh, you would be. You can also send us your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can even follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Send us questions there. I wanted to ask our, our, pinal, our panelists also about um, – can we focus on two things at once? And what I mean by this is, you know, I work in a newsroom here at WFIU, and right before the pandemic hit, we had made a pledge that we were going to really focus on climate change. And then the pandemic hit, and we had to shift and focus on the pandemic and the coronavirus. What has the pandemic met in terms of being able to address these issues? Who wants to start? I could start. Um, so, you know, the approval meeting for this document, this report that we're talking about, shifted all on online on Zoom. Um, I, I'm an anthropologist, and so I really value sort of human interaction and social interaction. But one of the benefits of the pandemic um, is that it showed us how 
easily it is, how easy some of the work that we do that historically has involved a lot of travel, um, which is a high carbon emission activity, can be done with reduced travel. So that was a positive lesson to learn. It also showed us how our governments, how our communities, how our societies can band together to to try to address a, a critical issue. And it was a really immediate emergency. And then there's the more slow onset disaster of climate change, which is difficult to mount a, a, a similar sort of response to. Um, but yes, yeah, so we, I think we've learned some lessons about collective effort to to meet emergencies. And then we've learned about how we can reduce some of our traveling and some of the work that used to be done to face, in face-to-face, which I still think is valuable, um, but perhaps we can minimize that. So mm-hmm. hopeful in, in the, the hard-won lessons we've learned. Mm-hmm. Michaela, anything to add? Yeah, I certainly agree with, with Jessica. I think that the COVID-19 uh, emergency also showed us just how interconnected we all are and how <coughs> supply chain issues in other parts of the globe can affect us here in Indiana. And likewise, I think that as we continue to see climate disruptions and um, climate or fossil fuel-related conflict, uh, we can see how interconnected these issues are and how it affects us here. And actually, last fall, uh, there was a joint comment from 250 medical journals, including The Lancet and um, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and they were jointly speaking on the health effects of climate change, actually, and that the way that climate change will affect us in the near future, they said, dwarfs that of COVID-19. So really thinking of how we have collectively responded to COVID-19, we've had policy and government intervention, and likewise, a similar intervention will be necessary for climate change. Okay. Ben, you want to add anything? Yeah, I you know I think some great answers so far from my uh, co-panelists here, but you know I would also just suggest... Um, you know, it kind of shows us both the potential of our government to, to take swift and you know significant action in response to a crisis, and then also what can happen if the government, um, you know, and other leaders don't take that action. So we saw, you know, some pretty uh, dramatic federal bills that were passed, including giving folks you know direct subsidies to help them through the crisis period, um, you know, when they're struggling financially. Um, but then, in you know, across the states, there was very uh, uneven application of how consumers were protected during that crisis. And so some states, for instance, ensured that customers couldn't be disconnected from their utilities, like their water and electricity. Uh, whereas in Indiana, we, we did not adopt those kind of protections. And so thousands of, of consumers were left in the cold in the dark um, during the pandemic um, because they lost their jobs. And because of the economic ramifications of the pandemic, they weren't able to, to pay those bills. And um, there was a really dramatic and dire impact on a lot of folks. So, you know, as we kind of think about how to, you know, how our government needs to respond to the climate crisis, this is where there's a lot of opportunity to make sure folks aren't getting left behind. Um, and this is where we really do need that kind of a, a centralized action um, to coordinate everybody so we can all, you know, move together towards, towards combating this, you know, global crisis. All right, we have a phone call from Jan. Jan's on the phone. you want to go ahead and ask your question? Uh, Bob, I don't have a question. I have a couple of comments. Okay. One is that, um, uh, first off, I'm calling you from about 13 miles southwest of where uh, your studio is, and I live in Indian Creek uh, Township, southwestern Monroe County. I'm a refugee from the D.C. area, um, which is pretty wealthy and well-educated. And I live out here now on a road that has a lot of trailers on it. And I've learned that, for example, uh, in my local homeowners association, when I asked, oh, yeah, how much is the dues? And the lady said $5. I said, uh, $5 a month, right? And she looked at me bug-eyed and said, no, $5 a year. We have some families who don't believe they can afford a $5 a year membership in our community association. So we're talking about all these things about climate change. The pain that I feel, and I have in retirement uh, an income that is above the average for Monroe County, but I look around at my neighbors and I think, we don't have any buses out here. 
We also don't have Duke Energy. We have UDWI-REMC. And the REMCs are exempt from having to um, be involved in that metering. Now, I'm probably going to put solar panels on my um, pole barn this spring, but I think in my neighborhood there are only two other um, homes, and this is on a four-mile stretch or five-mile stretch of road, that have solar panels. And I, I just – look, I'm college-educated too, but I – I look around here and I think these things that you all are talking about are for middle and upper class people. I don't really hear anything about how to help the, 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 the guy whose who's paycheck stub floated into my driveway and he makes $9 an hour gross. And a guy drives a pickup truck to work. Who's going to buy him any of this stuff? He's not interested in it. He's not going to be able to afford it on his own. He simply isn't. And he's still going to have to buy his electricity from the RMC because there is no other option. So I think you all, we all, are facing an enormous challenge, a cultural challenge. Even things like, you know, what, what can individuals do? I see individuals sitting in their big V8 vehicles in the Kroger parking lot, thumbing their telephones, and the engine is running just to keep them warm or cooled. In, in Burlington, Vermont, Ernie Sanders country, there are signs all over downtown saying it is against the law to sit in an idling vehicle. That includes in the Vermont winter. Will the local government decide to make a law along those lines and then hire enough law enforcement officers to enforce it. Okay, Jan, you have hit on a lot of good issues here, and I want to turn this over to our panelists now to to respond, and um, perhaps you can give our uh, producers your contact information because they may want to get back in touch with you at some point. All right, I want to ask... Uh, I want to ask Jessica first because you mentioned earlier that there have to be some cultural shifts, right? Right. Um, thank you for this question. I think this is um, absolutely at the heart of the of how we're going to solve climate change. We are not going to consume our way out of this mess, mm -hmm. um, and we and it's such a the problem is at such a scale that uh, individual actions. Um, are are just a drop in the bucket. Um, we are the wealthiest uh, country in in the world, and we've always found money to meet the challenges that we need to. So some of this is about economic prioritization at the top, so that uh, our neighbors um, are not shouldering an unfair burden. Um, uh, you know. And so uh, that's why energy policy about generating, um, uh, fueling the energy grid with renewable energy, um, investments from the companies, and those can be encouraged uh, through various policy options um, from, from tax rebates to, to regulation um, that will uh, move us in the right direction without um, asking poor people to uh, un inordinately shoulder the burden of something that um, really wealthy people with sort of excess or luxury emissions um, or companies uh, got us into. Michaela, it sounds like a question right up your alley about um, working with – you know, I think about Bloomington, and Bloomington has made such great strides in a lot of ways on these issues, but there's always some pushback from – People who will suggest that, you know, this doesn't work for me. I live outside of the city limits, for instance. There isn't transit to my house. Um, I have to be able to drive to where I'm going to go. So how do we sort of merge these issues into, into some sort of coherent policy? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
yes, I think as Jessica said, uh, the more that we can focus on the energy producers and policy makers, then there is a, a positive net benefit for all of us. So I believe that this recent IPCC report identified that 34% of global emissions are coming from energy producers and 24% are coming from industry. So that's probably not you and I here in this room, right? Um, So we are beholden to the types of uh, electricity or heat energy that is provided to us uh, by the grid. I think one way that we can see progress additionally is, as Jessica said, to continue to talk about the really big solutions and, and speak less about individual actions. And the good news from the IPCC report is that we have the technology. The technology is here. We have um, the ability to electrify, to transition to renewables, to um, make our buildings more efficient, as we're doing here on the Bloomington campus. And uh, so we, we know what to do. We just need a will to do it. All right. I have a question here that came out over Twitter. Um, I think, Ben, you might be in a best position to answer this one. It says, um, I wish that the wind farms near my hometown of Portland, Indiana, could provide some of that energy locally. I think they are currently feeding the national grid. Could be a hard sell for future Indiana wind farm development if we can't benefit from supply in our backyard. Well, fortunately, some of the wind farms located in in Indiana uh, are generating power to go to Hoosier homes to power our needs. Um, And we're going to be developing quite a few more uh, renewable energy systems going forward in order to to meet our needs as we transition off of coal and off of uh, natural gas to cleaner and more affordable energy solutions. And so, you know, that's a uh, I think your caller is right in that we need to be focusing on those solutions that we can grow right here in Indiana that can benefit Hoosiers. And I think that's where not only uh, wind and solar come into play, but things like uh, focusing on energy efficiency and kind of going back to uh, the last caller's comments, which I thought were, were really great. Um, you know, this is where the Citizens Action Coalition has been dedicating a lot of energy um, and a lot of our effort in the past years, because that is a huge opportunity to not only address the climate change, but help folks across the state regardless of their situation financially, uh, have a much more affordable and lower energy bill. And so, you know, we're doing things like calling on the governor to create a utility affordability task force to make sure that Hoosiers are not paying high energy bills, to make sure that as we transition to cleaner solutions, that folks are not getting hit on their energy bills and not having unaffordable bills and having to choose between things like paying for their energy bill and paying for medicine or food for the month. So those issues are going to be really critical going forward. Um, because, yeah, we are going to need to make investments as a state to make this transition, but there are solutions to do it cost-effectively. We only have about four minutes to go on the program. Ben, just to stick on, on that for just a second, uh, good or bad, the legislature comes back every year, right? So what are you looking forward to for next year in terms of an issue that you really want to work on? Well, we're hopeful that our legislature will you know, recognize the, you know, really high energy bills that folks have had to pay for the past year or two. Right now we're seeing uh, coal prices that are triple where they were a couple years ago. We're seeing gas prices more than double where they were a couple years ago. Um, So Hoosiers are facing an extraordinary crisis when it comes to the costs that they're paying on their bills. And so this goes not only to the commodity prices of these fuels increasing, but our utilities also uh, kind of gold plating their systems, making a lot of unnecessary investments that get passed on to customers that aren't actually benefiting customers through things like improved reliability or a cleaner grid. And so we need our General Assembly to take action on this issue, um, specifically focusing on consumers and on ensuring that they're not going to be paying high, high, ever higher energy bills, making us a less competitive state. And uh, at the end of the day, really harming consumers and their ability to afford energy. Michaela, in, uh, in the last minute and a half I can give you, I'll, I'll give you a minute and a half too, Jessica. But, you know, what are your messages to our listeners out there? What do you hope they take away from this conversation today and what do you hope they do? I don't know if we've done a good job of illustrating it today, but I would just love it if, if listeners would come away feeling hopeful 
because we we do have technology, we do have mm-hmm. really smart folks working on this, we do have solutions that are working, and these are solutions that check a lot of boxes. They check public health, they check affordability, and um, so there is reason to be hopeful, and I'm hopeful, and uh, we we can't give up. All right. Jessica? Um, I would encourage listeners uh, who are motivated by this conversation and this problem to think about if they're able, how they can scale up their activity from individual to their town, to their region, to their state, to their place of worship, um, their their university or school. What can they do uh, to scale up efforts and make it more collective? Because that is what we need to do to make the impacts uh, felt um, and hopefully bend this curve down even farther. And those of you who have extra time and extra money, um, uh, please uh, shoulder a little more so that um, for for uh, Jan's neighbors who who don't have the time, um, perhaps to to work on this problem, that that they're picking up um, some a share for other people too. Well, I think I think we have been fairly hopeful. I think yeah. that was a, a good good summation of what's going on. And what one thing I took away from this is that I think everybody does have to continue to do their individual part, but at the same time, we've got as you said, you just use the term scale up. It's got to be more. There's got to be more policy decisions made that are going to help get us out of this situation or mitigate the situation in the short term and perhaps solve it in the long term. So, I appreciate all three of you being here with us today. Our guests were Jessica O'Reilly from the Hamilton Luger School of Global and International Studies, Ben Inskeep from the uh, Citizens Action Coalition and adjunct instructor at Indiana University, and Michaela Bonney from Sustain IU. For our producers, Holden Abshire and Benta Boutier. For engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or IntegrityFirstInsuranceServices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation. Improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. As the news gets more complex and changes through the day, you need more than just a quick headline check. Here and Now keeps you connected to your world between Morning Edition and All Things Considered as the news and the people shaping it are changing in real time. I'm Robin Young. Follow along on Here and Now, NPR News, weekday afternoons. Weekdays from 1 to 3 on WFIU 2. You're listening to WFIU Bloomington. With translators W270BH at 1019 in Bloomington. W264AL at 100.7 in Columbus. W269BU at 1017 in French Lick, West Baden. W255BG at 989 in Greensburg. W291AM at 1061 in Kokomo. W261CM at 100.1 in Seymour. And W236AE at 951 in Terre Haute. From APM, American Public Media, this is Performance Today. I'm Fred Child. He went by the pen name Hafiz. Hafiz lived about 700 years ago in what is now Iran. His work is 